Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Father's Day. Wow. Happy Father's Day. All right. You know, it's so good to be back in the saddle, as they say. You know, I spent a couple of weeks in Israel, and I really missed being here on a Sunday. And being in Israel was awesome. And I came back, and we had Jim Warner Wallace, who was here, talking about cold case Christianity, and it was awesome. And the last week, Pastor Doug was preaching, and it was awesome. So I'm hoping this morning it's going to be... <laughs> All right. Well, we're continuing in our series, and we're talking about um, Moses unscripted. And I haven't said this in a while, but what we're doing is we're kind of looking at another side of Moses, the side of him that we don't often see in movies, we don't read about in books or hear in messages, and we're kind of going off script, and we're going behind the culture and learning about what things meant in that time. And we're looking at the Exodus from the perspective of Moses, one of the greatest leaders ever, and there's so much that we can learn and glean from his life. And we're several weeks in, and we're still learning and getting more from him. And as we, as we come to a close at the end of the summer, I believe that we're all going to be not just better leaders for it, but we're going to be better followers of Christ as we take a lot of these, these um, scenarios from his life and we're able to apply them to our lives today. And I believe today is going to be no different. We're going to uh, start in the book of Exodus chapter 25, and we're looking at something that's very, very important. We're looking at the tabernacle. It's been called the tabernacle of Moses, and this is something that God gave to Moses in order to give to the people so they would have a place to worship him. They would have a place to learn about him. And we're going to look at the six elements that we find in the tabernacle itself and how each of them spoke to the people then, but how it speaks to us now, today in 2017, in Mississauga, in the GTA. And so let's get right to it. Uh, our key text is going to come from the book of Exodus today. So if you have your Bibles, you can kind of turn to Exodus 3. And uh, if you're an electronic person, make sure you've downloaded the uh, Portico app, and you can follow along. We have it for the iOS and also for the Android systems. And here it is, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. It says that God answered, speaking to Moses about sending him on this great mission he was about to go on to. He says, I will be with you. And then God said, this is your sign, that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. God was saying, you're standing before me here right now, Moses, as, as a shepherd, as somebody who ran away from your home because of a huge mistake you made 40 years ago. But I'm telling you that the day is coming. Well, not only will you help the people flee and help the people escape and, and be released from Egypt, but you're going to bring two million people back to this exact mountain, and they're not going to be afraid. You're, going to, you're not going to be afraid. In fact, you're going to worship me on this very mountain. And Moses said, if you say so. 
Because he sure didn't believe it. Because in that moment, he wasn't the leader that we're preaching about today. He wasn't the person that we're preaching about today. He was a scared shepherd who was happy with this new life he had made. And now God said, everything is about to change. And in one year from now, you're going to be back here worshiping me. And so as we come to Exodus chapter 25 today, this is what we call a full circle moment for Moses and for the people. Moses never dreamed he would leave Midian. That was his life now. That's where he had made his home. That's where he had built a family. That's where he had built a career. He was fully planning on living out the rest of his years in Midian. He was happy to live there. He was probably happy to die there. But here he is a year later with two million people standing at this place. You know, this Exodus 25 throws us back to Exodus 3, and it recounts this this whole scenario when Moses was at the burning bush with God, and so God sent him, and he said, you're going to come back. We see this often in the Bible, where God makes a promise at one place, then he says, later on at this very place, I will do this as a sign that it's me. If you look in Genesis chapter 22, there was a man named Abraham, and he had a son, Isaac, and they lived in the south of Israel in a place called Beersheba. And God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, and I want you to go up to Jerusalem And there I'm going to show you a mountain called Moriah. And on that mountain, I want you to sacrifice your son for me. And we know the story. We've talked about that here quickly on a Sunday morning. But as Abraham is on Mount Moriah and he's ready to sacrifice his son, God steps in, right? Sees his faith and provides a substitution. A lamb is sent to die on behalf of the men. And then 2,000 years later, on Mount Moriah, the very place where the rabbi said, because God sent a lamb here to die as a substitution, this is where he will send another substitution, the great one, the Messiah. And on that very hill, 2,000 years later, Jesus is on the cross of Mount Moriah, and he dies as our lamb, as our substitution. And so we see this in in Scripture, as God makes a promise, and then He fulfills it by doing it full circle in the exact moment. Have you ever had a full circle moment where something happens in your life, and then years later, you're back at that place, but now you're not the person you were when you were there five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Now you've grown, and you've matured, and you said, God, I never thought that I would be here again, and I sure never thought I'd be in this place where I am. God specializes in full circle moments. And so today we're talking about having a pattern for worship as we look to the tabernacle. Some of it, some people just see it as a tent, and it's got some cool pieces inside made of gold and bronze. But what is it about this tabernacle? Why was God so detailed? Why did he spend chapter after chapter systematically laying out the way that it was to be set up every single day? Well, as we talk about worship, we're going to learn today that it's, it's less about the location and it's more, about, it's more about the heart, how we approach God. You know, some people say we worship God when we come to church. Now, how many worship God this morning? Right? We're worshiping God. It was wonderful as Dwayne and the team were leading us in His presence. But some people think that's the only form of worship, that you can only worship God in a church or, or at a retreat or at a at a Christian conference or something. But the truth is, you can worship God anywhere. Did you know that? I worship God in church. I have a wonderful experience when I'm here, but this isn't where I have my most intimate time with God. 
It's at nighttime when I go outside and I look up at the sky and I see the stars and the planets and the galaxies and I said, God, you're amazing. And I drive my family nuts. Every night we go out, I I said, guys, look, it's Jupiter. And they're like, yeah, Dad, it's amazing. I said, are you kidding me? That's 600 million miles away and I can see it with my eyeballs. They're like, yeah, it's amazing. Let's go get ice cream. (laughs) But that's how I worship God when I look up into the heavens. And so don't get caught up where you worship. Because Jesus was talking to a woman, a Samaritan, at a well. And he, he said this to her, you know, there's a time coming. And it's actually now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks, and God is spirit. And so his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we don't want to get caught up of where we worship or even how we worship, but we want to talk about who we worship. Is that okay this morning? Okay. Is God worthy of our worship? Okay, eight of you believe it. That's great. Hopefully by the end, all of us will. I think we all believe that, right? God is worthy of our worship. But why should we worship God? Yes, He's a holy God. Yes, He's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. Everything in the known universe, God is the one who has created it. He loves us so much that He saw us in our broken state. But He loved us enough to not leave us broken. And so He made a way. He sent His Son. He Himself became flesh and died for us. And so we have a lot of reasons to worship God. And so what is worship? I'm going to define that in just a moment, but let me ask you a question. Do you think there's a right way or a wrong way to worship God? What do you think? Yes or no? Is there a right way to worship God? Is there a wrong way to worship God? You're not sure. See, I've traveled around the world, and I've seen all kinds of different formats of worship. I've been in parts of the world where it's, you say good morning, and a revival breaks out in the service. And I've been in other churches where I've preached my heart out, and they said, oh, that was good. So I've seen all kinds of expressions of worship, and so what is worship, and is there a right way and wrong way to do it? Some people like to worship Him quietly. Some do it sitting down. Some like to stand up. Some even fall on the ground. There's all different ways to worship God. And so as we were talking as a, as a, a team preparing for the sermon today, there was a video that came up in all of our minds. And there's a comedian named Tim Hawkins. And he talks about the different expressions that we use with our arms as we worship God. Now, there might be some people in the church this morning, uh, perhaps your dad and your kids said, Dad, please come out to, uh, to church with us, and you're not really familiar with the different styles of worship. What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn your attention to the side screens for just a minute, and I want you to watch this very brief, very comical, but accurate description of the different forms of worship in church. Enjoy. But hey, if you're not used to going to hand-raising church, you want to go and join us. Feel free to join us, but don't feel like you got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking. Start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap. You're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. 
When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. You're set. Do we have any window washers this morning? And no window washers? <laughs> you know, it's comical, but it's true. There's all these different expressions of worship. And, the, you know, I was, I was doing it this morning in worship. I was doing this. I'm like, oh, I'm carrying the TV. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about worship. And earlier I said I was going to define it. So what is worship? The dictionary gives us four brief uh, ways that we can look at it. The first is uh, a person of importance can be called a worship. Uh, Judges and magistrates, you've heard them say, uh, yes, you're worship. So it's a term uh, of authority that we use for for people. It's also, uh, it's a reverence offered to a divine being or supernatural power. That would be what we would say, worship to, to God. And then there's the actual, the act of worship. There's a worship service. There's a worship experience. There's that kind of worship. But then there's this kind, the fourth one, it says that we can have extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to or for an object. And so some of us would say, oh, I don't worship anything else but God. But let's go back to the definition. It's an extravagant amount of respect or admiration or time that we give to a person, to a place, or to a thing. And so I had to ask myself, hey, Joe, who are you worshiping? What takes up the most time in your life? Think about it. Where do you devote the most time? Outside of church and family or work, where do you devote your time? And what we invest our time in is what or whom we worship. So can we know how to worship properly? We saw the different ways that we can worship, and we know that God sets up a pattern for worship, so can we know how to worship? Absolutely. Because God set up something called the tabernacle, which was a mobile center that could move with the people as they went from camp to camp, as they went from place to place. And then later it became the temple, which was a permanent version, and it was fixed, but yet God put this pattern in place for us. So let me share three things with you about worship this morning that we get from the tabernacle. And the first is this, that the, uh, the tabernacle provided a visible sign of God's desire to live in community. 
So it was a visible sign because you couldn't see God, but you could see the tabernacle. And God set it up in a way that when you walk through the tabernacle, that was to be emulated in our lives. To get from the outer courts to the Holy of Holies, there was a system, there was a way to get there. And God says, this is how I want you to approach me. We all begin in the outer court. We all begin outside the main gates. And as we walk into the very first element and we walk through all the way to the Holy of Holies, God gives us a pattern, not just for Sundays, but how we can live our lives every single day. So let me share a verse with you here in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Now, we know today that God dwells in us, but in the Old Testament, that's not how it worked. God came down for a season. God came down for a moment, empowered the people, and then it would lift. But God said, build me a tabernacle, and I will dwell there. I will be there all the time. This was a huge step in the process of the relationship with the people of God. They now had a place where God would always be. And when we think about the tabernacle, we think, it must have been huge, There was two million people traveling with Moses. Surely it must have been a massive, massive facility. Well, I was thinking, how can I show us as Canadians how big the tabernacle actually was? So I compared it to something I think everybody will know, a hockey rink. Look at the picture of the hockey rink, and that's almost to scale the size of the tabernacle over a hockey rink. It goes from the goal line to the goal line. That's it. Two million people were supposed to use this facility to come and worship God, so it's not as big as we think. Now, another sport that I love is soccer. So I thought, let me show you on a soccer field how big the tabernacle was. (laughs) Again, just from the gold crease to the gold crease, that's it. That was supposed to be the thing that was used to come and worship God. And so the tabernacle wasn't huge in its physical size but it was huge in its significance. The people couldn't see God directly. The way to see Him was to walk through the tabernacle. If people followed the steps and the procedures, they would see God. And so if people can't see God directly, and we're the tabernacle, and we're the temple, here's the question, are people seeing God in us? Are we walking through that process every day? Are we going through the sacrifice all the way into the Holy of Holies? And when we do that, are people seeing God in us? Because after all, Corinthians says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? So how do people see God in us? How do people see God in Joe Amaral? You know, a lot of times when I work out the messages, I don't think of just you out there. I think, God, how does this apply to me? I'm not immune from these messages. I'm not immune from the problems, the troubles, the the tribulations, the temptations that people face. So, God, how do people see you in me? Do they see me because of the clothes that I wear? Do they see me because of my denominational tag? Oh, I'm a Pentecostal or I'm a Baptist. I'm this or I'm that. How How do people see God in us? The answer is so simple. Jesus said it in John. He said, it's by our love one for another. Amen? That people will know that we are his disciples. We're to live in such a way that not only will people see God in us, but that they'll be attracted to him. 
If all people had was us and our lives to know about God, which God would they know? What version of God would they know? It's a very important question. And so God put this tabernacle so that we could approach Him and be with Him. But here's an amazing thing. It's not just that God wants us to fellowship with Him. God wants to fellowship with us. The creator of the universe, the creator of the heavens, of everything we see and don't see, that God who's so big wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. I don't know about you, but I find that amazing. And in John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus replied that anyone who loves me will obey my commandments, and my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. God desires to come into our lives, into our homes, and He says, I want to be with you. In Genesis 3.8, we have this incredible example of how God desired to be with His people. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Do we hear the sound of the Lord walking with us in the cool of the day? Or are we so busy that we drown out his footsteps and we wonder where he is, but he's there? And I don't know about you, but I want to hear the sound of the footsteps of my Lord walking with me. Amen. The second point I want to talk about today when we look at the tabernacle is this, that the tabernacle provided the model for God's pattern of worship. Look at what it says in Exodus 25, 9. We're going to have a little bit of fun with this, okay? This is what God said. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings pretty close to the pattern that I showed you. Nobody's going to correct me? Does that say it? Just get it in the ballpark and we're good. Does God say that? No. He says, make the tabernacle, and all of its furnishings exactly, say exactly, exactly like the pattern I will show you. How many times has God spoken to you? You felt him leading you in a direction, and he says, Joe, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. Then I start to think it through and said, well, if I do exactly what he says, it's going to take a lot longer to get there. There could be disappointment. There could be, there could be hurt. There could be failure. So, God, I appreciate the advice, and I'm going to do it pretty close to how you're saying. And then we don't follow God, and it doesn't work out, and then we blame God. Just me. Okay. But God says, follow my direction exactly. And so Moses does that. So let me show you an image of the tabernacle. This is in a place called Timnah which is in the very, very south of Israel, near the Egyptian border on the, uh, the Red Sea. And I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, hey, this is great timing. I'm actually at one of two life-size replicas in the world of the tabernacle. I'm going to get some pictures beside it so that you can see it for scale. That's it. That's smaller than a hockey rink. That's the tabernacle. That's the pattern of how to approach God. doesn't look very impressive, does it? But as we begin to look at the different elements, we're going to see that although it's not beautiful and huge, there is something there for us. So let me show you this chart 
that'll take us from the very beginning, from the entranceway, all the way through to the Holy of Holies. So I'm going to get up my little pointer here. So this is the main gate coming into the tabernacle. We're going to walk through these different elements. Mind you, you know, quickly walk. But then we're going to come here to the veil, and then we're going to actually go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And we're going to see a pattern that God says, this isn't just for Sundays. This isn't just for the Old Testament. This isn't just for Moses. It's not just for the Israelites. This is for Portico. This is for Joe. This is for you. If you will follow this pattern, we will be in fellowship. We will be in communion. And so the first thing we look at is the altar of sacrifice. Let's see here. There's a picture. I think I have a photo that I took when I was, when I was down in Timna. This is the, the life-size replica of the altar. And the next picture, I'm standing in behind it because I kind of wanted to show you the perspective. I'm a six-foot guy, and that's where I am. And we can see the horns of the altar. They made it to scale. And then the next picture, I'm standing beside it, and you can just kind of see. There was a ramp where they would bring the cart up with the sacrifices to be able to dump on the altar. And the first thing we learn about the altar is that it's made of bronze. And bronze always represented judgment in the Old Testament. We're judged because of our sin, and a price had to be paid in order to appease the justice of God. Now, let me tell you about the altar. How many have ever heard the term an altar call? You got, we do altar calls here sometimes, right? When you think of an altar call, we think of coming down to the front and having an experience with God. And it seems to be more for us than it is for something else. But the altar only had one purpose, for things to die on. That's why the altar existed. A sacrifice had to be made. You could not enjoy the rest of the tabernacle. You couldn't move past the first station until something died on the altar. So this should change the way we look at what we call altar calls. It's not just about having an experience. When we come to an altar, whether it's physically or we come to an altar in our minds as we're responding to a message, we need to make sure that we're bringing something to die. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a way of thinking that we have. God, before I come into your presence, I need to bring this thing to the altar. I'm sick and tired of trying to deal with it myself. I need this to die today. I want it to be done once and for all. Sometimes we disqualify ourselves and we say, God, I'm not fit to go into the Holy of Holies. If the people knew the struggles I had, if the people knew what I was wrestling with, Sometimes we disqualify ourselves because of things that we go through, and, and people say to me, but Joe, you're a pastor. You don't struggle with stuff. I wish when you graduated Bible college and they gave you your ordination that you would stop struggling. Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what? Oh, it doesn't work that way. And people say, oh, come on. You don't feel disqualified. You don't feel that way. You're a pastor. Of course I do. Because I'm part of what Romans says. For all have done what? He didn't say, for the people sitting in the pew have sinned. He said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 says, all 
have turned away. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. And Isaiah says in 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us, every single one of us, need to come to that altar. Every single one of us has something in our lives that needs to die. And so that first gate that you come to, that's called the way. There's three gates as you go through. There's three different veils. And that first veil is called the way. And you can't go anywhere. You can't even get into the tabernacle unless you die on the altar. And what's the first thing Jesus does for us? He dies. He dies on the altar that's called the cross to cover our sins. And unlike the people who had to bring a sacrifice every day, twice a day they had to bring sacrifices. But Jesus said, I am. In John 14, he said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And when he said no one gets to the Father, everybody knew what he was talking about. The first gate was the way. The second veil was the truth. And the second veil was the life. And if we want to get to the life part of our relationship with God, we've got to allow ourselves, we've got to allow the things in us to die on the altar. The second element we come to is called the laver. And this was also made of bronze. And there's a photo of it here. And this was filled with with living water. Now, it's also made of bronze, and bronze represents judgment because we have to judge ourselves. Once we come to faith in Christ, it's not, we don't get a card that just helps us bypass all the sin in life. Every day, we've got to judge ourselves. We've got to come to that labor, which is filled with the living water, which is the Word of God, and we've got to wash ourselves on a daily basis. God says Sundays aren't enough. Tuesday nights aren't enough. Growth groups aren't enough. You have to come on a daily basis. You have to die to yourself, and then you have to look into the reflection on that water and see yourself for who you really are. You know, I think it would be great if there was a system in place that all you had to do was confess your sin once and then never, ever struggle again. But you know what? Human nature isn't that way, is it? Every day, you and I have to make a decision to say, God, I'm going to do my best to live according to your word today. It's not easy, but we've got to come to that altar every day, and then we've got to come to that labor, and we need to repent. We need to look into the reflection and see ourselves for who we are. And once we have that altar of sacrifice, and once we repent and we, we come to that process, we can proceed to the next element, which is called the table of showbread. And now we're into the second chamber. We had the way, and now there's a second veil, and that's called the area of the truth. And now we come into that part. But you've got to go through the first two. You can't frog jump over the first section and get to the second. There's no side door. You have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus. There is no other way to get into the Father's presence. You can't sneak in. You can't dig under. You can't jump over. The only way to the Father is through the sacrificial altar called the cross. Anybody believe that here? Amen. Amen. So once we make it through the altar and once we make it through the laver, we come to the table of showbread. And now things have changed. Because if you look at that, go to the next picture of me standing beside it. Again, just to give you an idea of the size, it's no longer made of bronze. From this moment forward, all the elements are made of gold. And gold is a reflection of purity 
and of fellowship. And so once we accept that sacrifice, we move from judgment into a stage of fellowship with God. And what's beautiful is that it's called the table of show bread. Bread was an essential part of fellowship in those days. You've heard the term, let's break bread together. When you said to somebody, I want to break bread with you, it didn't just mean you wanted to have a sandwich with them. It meant you wanted to come into their home. You wanted to sit with them. You wanted to get to know them. God says, I want you to come in on a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. I want a fellowship with you, Joe. I want a fellowship with you, Portico. Not just on Sundays, not just on Tuesdays, but every day I want to enter into a relationship with you. Are we eating our daily bread? We move to the next image and called the lampstand or the golden menorah. As the name implies, it's made of solid gold and it gives light to the rest of the room. When the priest went into that second chamber, without the menorah, he'd be walking around in darkness. And just like the menorah, just like the lampstand gives light to show you the bread, which is the Word of God, Jesus also was the light. Without Him, we are walking in darkness. And so once we have that fellowship with him, eating that daily bread, he begins to illuminate the paths, the right ways to go. And then the third thing that's in that chamber is called the altar of incense. And incense in the Scriptures is a beautiful reminder of prayer and fellowship. So we accept the sacrifice. We judge ourselves according to the Word of God. We fellowship with Him by partaking of that daily bread. He illuminates the pathway in order for us to walk. And then the Bible says not only are our prayers going up to God, but the Bible says that Jesus, the great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And you know what He's doing there? He's interceding for us. Do you think about that? Jesus prays for you. Anybody have a godly mother who says, I'm praying for you, Joe. All you single people, I'm praying for a spouse. Right? All you married people, I'm praying for a grandchild. Jesus says, Joe, I'm praying for you. I see your struggles. I know what you're going through. And I'm seated at the right hand of my Father, and I'm praying for you. I'm praying for victory. I'm praying that you're going to make it. And I said, God, you're praying for me. I don't know about you, but that gives me such great hope to know that our great high priest who identifies with us in every way is in heaven praying for us. And before we get into the Holy of Holies, we have the great veil. The great veil that would separate the people from God But it also separated God from the people because God couldn't look at a sinful people. And that veil is what covered that up. And we know what happened when Jesus died on the cross, don't we? The Bible says the veil was torn. God saw us in a different way. He saw us in a new light after the sacrifice of Jesus. And unlike in the tabernacle where the high priest could go in one day a year, We now have access to the Father on a daily basis. Are we taking full advantage of that great gift 
Are we looking into the face of the Father? And today as we celebrate Father's Day, we have the greatest Father. God, our Father, who loves us and prays for us and wants to have fellowship with us. And once we go through all that process, and now we have the freedom to walk in past the veil that's been torn, we walk into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Let's go ahead to the next picture. That's the picture of the veil. Here's the Ark of the Covenant, and God says, I will dwell between the cherubim. If we want to be daily in His presence, folks, we have to go through this pattern of worship. God says, follow it exactly, and that will take you from the outer courts right into my very presence. And I don't know about you this morning, but I want to have a relationship with God. I want to be able to be like Moses. I want to see Him face to face. Amen? And the third thing I want to share with you this morning as the worship team comes is that the tabernacle provided a point of of personal connection. God wasn't just this faraway idea. He wasn't just this, this thought that there's a God out there. God says, build me this tabernacle, and it will be a reminder that I am there in the midst of you. You can come into my presence. And so it provides this point of personal connection. And God said, that if you build me this and you follow the pattern, you will be my people and I will be your God. As I was coming to the end of the message, I was thinking of this verse that just blew my mind about how much our God wants to be with us. Do you know that before the world ever began, He thought of you? Did you know that? He wasn't worried about the laws of physics and science. That would all come. But before the foundation of the world, he says, that Joe guy, he's going to need me. He thought of you. And in Ephesians, he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and I'm going to invite you to come on a journey with me as we close this morning. Let me show you the picture again of the tabernacle. And many of us found ourselves here at one point. We were outside of God's presence. But through the death of His Son, Jesus, we come into the camp. We come into the presence. And then we come here to the labor and we say, God, I need to look at Your Word. I need You to show me the things that I need to repent from. And then we come into the first stage and we have that fellowship, that bread, the reading of the Word. We have that time of prayer. We have His light that shows us the pathway. And then finally, because of that veil that's been torn, we can walk into His presence and have fellowship with Him. And I don't know what your situation is today, if you're a visitor, if you're a longtime attender of this church, but God wants to take you from the outer court to the most holy place this morning. God desires to have that face-to-face relationship with you. And no matter what you've done, if you will accept that sacrifice that Jesus made upon that altar, that's the way in. No works, no philosophies, no other theologies, accepting who He said He was and applying that sacrifice to our lives, God says, come into my presence. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and we're just going to begin to worship God. And as we close this part of our service today, just put the things of this world to the side. 
I know there's things happening later for Father's Day. I know that we have things that we got to do later. But right now in this moment, say, God, I just want to stand in your presence. And it doesn't have to end here. Lord, I could be in your presence in the restaurant where I go have lunch with my dad. It could could be in my house. It can be in my bedroom. It can be on my drive home. But whatever you do today, just remember, not only are we the ones who want a relationship with him, but he wants a relationship with us. Amen? Amen.